or not to be? That is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and by opposing end them to die, to sleep. In the ninth season of this podcast, we'll be exploring some great writers and works of literature that have been requested by you, the listeners. Okay, so who are we going to talk about today? Well, you know it already, but I can't resist. He's the one who tells us that all the world's a stage, and all men and women merely players. It's from him that we get the greatest of counsel to thine own self be true. And it's from his incomparable depths that we get the famous There are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in your philosophy. This is the wisdom of, and this is episode three, The Bard, Shakespeare's Hamlet. down a long list of like super famous quotes, transcendent quotes from this work. To be or not to be, everybody knows, uh, even uh, holding York's skull and, and saying, ah, oh, he was known for infinite jest, uh, neither a borrower nor a lender be. I could go on and on and on. But I'd rather switch gears and somewhat shamefully admit something. Well, we put out an episode a while ago thanking the listeners and now this season is dedicated to listener choices as a further thanks. Instead of gratitude, which was the overwhelming feeling of those, I want to express a feeling of envy. You see, listeners, apparently you have a power that I don't. I have been pushing for some Shakespeare for a while, uh, probably since the beginning of this entire podcast. We had an entire season on tragedy a season where we made some creative slash bizarre choices, but no Hamlet to many, the tragedy, but some disembodied voice from the wilds of the interweb comes out and boom, just like that. We have Hamlet. So tell us about Hamlet. Okay. So I'll get to um, Hamlet in a second, but let me start with Shakespeare first. So William Shakespeare was an English playwright born in 1564. Some of his most famous works include, well, Romeo and Juliet, The Merchant of Venice, King Lear, Macbeth, and Hamlet. His plays, which include tragedies, comedies, and histories, have been translated into nearly every language, and they're performed more than any other playwright. He's often considered to be the greatest writer in the English language. Now, the play that we're going to look at, Hamlet, which is his longest work, centers around Hamlet, the, the Prince of Denmark. 
Now, basically what happens is that Hamlet, after conversing with his father's ghost, learns that his father was murdered by his uncle, Claudius, who has assumed Denmark's throne and married Hamlet's mother. Now, Hamlet knows that he has to avenge his father's murder by killing the usurper, Claudius, but finds it very difficult to go through with the act. So, last episode, we we went back to something we'd done a lot. We focused and analyzed three separate characters. With this play, we're just going to do the one. It's really all focusing on Hamlet. And specifically, everything we're going to talk about is going to be focused on a single theme, and that's procrastination. On that topic, I'm... I think of myself as kind of a low-key loser Hamlet. I thought about saying Shamlet there, but I thought better of it. Like, if you removed all the stakes, turned the story into some 1990s insufferable indie movie on urban ennui with a category of irony somehow even lower than sarcasm, that would be me. But both of us are perpetually turning things over in our minds and often failing to get any further, really getting anywhere. While Hamlet contemplates the big questions of the universe, the nature of existence itself, I find myself wondering what to think about. Like, I saw a 70-year-old lady, and she's walking around, and she has dyed purple and green hair. And I'm just struck, and I don't know how to feel this. Like, part of me says, oh my gosh, this is amazing what an iconoclast and not giving in to societal pressures and just putting it all out there. And then at the same time, like, God, is that so pathetic? I can't believe I'm saying this at 70. You haven't gotten over. You haven't grown out of this bizarre look at me posturing. So that's what's rolling over in my mind. That's the kind of contemplation I'm doing, but all of Hamlet's contemplation, where does it get him? Okay, so, so let me begin with Claudius first, because I think it'll be useful. So it seems that one thing that Shakespeare does is that he really contrasts Claudius, you know, the one who murders Hamlet's father, with Hamlet himself. And it looks to me that the, the central contrast is this. Claudius is depicted as a man of action, and Hamlet is not. I mean, Claudius knows what he wants, and he just goes for it. He just gets it done. He's depicted as strong-willed, and as always having a direction. He makes plans and executes on them. And importantly, he doesn't let morality stand in the way of his goals. If what he wants involves having to do evil to get it, well, then so be it. Whatever is necessary to the achievement of his goal, he'll do. But one thing this takes, of course, is a, is a kind of keen sense of human psychology, which Claudius has. And it's because of this that he's able to manipulate others in the service of his own ends. Actually, you know what? Now that I think about it, Claudius reminds me a little bit of what the Italian political thinker Machiavelli says about what it takes to be a ruler in his book, The Prince. Uh, written over 500 years ago, it was essentially meant as a kind of handbook for rulers. Now, basically what Machiavelli says is that if you want to be a good or effective ruler, you have to divorce ethics from politics. 
In other words, he counsels a demoralized perspective of the world of political action. That is, if your aim is to survive and to really get things done as a ruler and a political figure, then you're justified in using immoral means to achieve those ends. Essentially, you're, you're justified in using fear and force to get what you want. Anyway, I guess my point is that in Claudius's calculating, ambitious, and ruthless pursuit of power, he seems to come sort of close to the kind of ruler Machiavelli famously describes. Okay, now, now back to my earlier point. Hamlet seems to be the opposite of Claudius. That is, he seems to be a man of moral integrity and someone plagued by uncertainty or procrastination. He just can't seem to execute the command of his father's ghost. He can't go through with the deed that he knows he must do. Plagued by consciousness, he just can't get himself to plunge that sword into his uncle's breast. You know, it's, it's interesting. Something like Hamlet's inertness or meekness is what Callicles, in Plato's great dialogue, the Gorgias, accuses Socrates of. I don't know, in this way, Callicles and Socrates sort of remind me of Claudius and Hamlet. Okay, but how so exactly? Well, what Callicles tells Socrates is that superior people, and here he includes himself, are this way because they're not only intelligent, but also courageous. Courageous in the sense that they're able to accomplish what they intend to do without flinching or hesitating because of, quote, softness of soul. Now, basically, he's telling Socrates that people like Socrates, um, you know, the, the puny philosophers, aren't so-called manly. They're not men of action. They don't get things done. And they can't even really protect themselves if need be. Why? Well, because they're just too contemplative and therefore indecisive. All they want to do is talk about things and never actually do anything. In this way, Philosophers like Socrates, Callicles says, are like children. They're just not competent to manage and to take action. You know, saying all this, Marx comes to mind here when he says, philosophers have only interpreted the world in various ways. But the point, however, is to change it. Anyway, now, now something like this is the sort of charge often made against Hamlet as it regards Claudius, right? That is, Hamlet procrastinates, delays, or hesitates when he should be taking confident and swift action in securing vengeance. So, is this a reasonable charge against Hamlet? Well, who knows for sure? I mean, I read somewhere that only the Bible has invited more interpretation than Hamlet. But for my own sort of novice speculations on this, I want to go to what might seem to be an unusual place. That is, what I want to do is take a look at something the underground man talks about in Dostoevsky's incredible novella, Notes from the Underground. So, if you unravel his ramblings, it seems that the underground man makes a distinction between what he calls men of action, or direct men, and men of consciousness, which of course includes himself. Now, what he says is that, and I'll quote him here, he says, All direct persons and men of action are active just because they are stupid and limited. Okay, so what does he mean by this? Well, I think what he's saying 
is that the only way to really act is to free your mind from doubt and reflection. But the problem is, though, that the intelligent man is never without this, and it's precisely because of that that he can't act. Acute reflection or consciousness results in nothing but inertia. So action for the underground man is correlated with non-reflection and stupidity, and inaction with over-contemplation. Okay, so now Hamlet is clearly a contemplative individual, actually in, in many ways an intellectual. I mean, we see this most notably in his soliloquies, right? Where in his private thoughts directed only to the audience, he's constantly both self-questioning and questioning matters around him. Now, why would someone like this, someone who's not prone to simplification, think vengeance is an obvious action to take? I mean, even the underground man suggests something like this. He says that the active man has no problem revenging himself because he just chalks it up as a case of simple justice. But things are not so easy for the man of consciousness, says the underground man. And that's because for someone who thinks reflectively about things, it's not so immediately obvious that there's justice in revenge. No, concepts like justice are complicated. In fact, the nature of justice has been discussed and debated since Socrates started asking about it 2,500 years ago. So, if you're completely without doubt about such matters, then it's not at all clear that you've thought much about it, or that you want to. Maybe another way of putting this is that since revenge requires a firm sense of the nature of justice, no reflective person would ever assume to know anything conclusive about it. And so, I don't know, maybe that might warrant them in not taking immediate action. Now, all this said, of course, absolute obsessive tendency for reflection might be another matter altogether. I mean, it's possible that Hamlet's inner sanctuary of reflection may have become a kind of prison from which he couldn't really escape, and that that explains his hesitation or procrastination in acting. I mean, there's a point when self-examination and questioning can go too far, right? And produce immobility. But if this is what inflicted Hamlet, he's certainly not the only one to suffer from it. I mean, lots of thinkers have debilitated themselves due to the pursuit of the so-called examined life, due to the pursuit of an answer to the Delphic oracle or injunction, know thyself. There is, I think, such a thing as too much searching, searching within the quagmire that is the infinite labyrinth of inner experience. I don't know, I think Rousseau suffered from this, and so did St. Augustine and maybe even to some extent Nietzsche. Nietzsche, who noticed that despite years of our arduous self-examination, we are necessarily strangers to ourselves. Indeed, that at the end of the day, we actually have to misunderstand ourselves if we ever want to move on. It's said that tragedy plus time equals comedy, and with the amount of times in this play that Hamlet references time, specifically how little time there was between his father's death, his father's murder, 
and his mother's remarriage to Hamlet's uncle, who, as far as Hamlet is concerned, is almost completely probably the murderer. The tragedy plus time gives comedy might fall apart, though. I I find it difficult to picture Hamlet given even, I don't know, a ton of time yucking it up with his boys. You know, I remember my uncle in that vain, grotesque power grab. You know, he slayed my dad. Hilarious. So if we're looking at Hamlet's problem, his problem with procrastination, this problem with a very complicated character, could it be for the most understandable of reasons and all these great tragedies that he's endured? Okay, so um, let me back up a bit before I try to answer that by providing a bit of a a larger context, because I think it'll be helpful. Okay, so the average person during Shakespeare's time lived in a significantly different world than our own. What I mean is that they were mostly still in the grip of Ptolemy's view of the cosmos, one where the heavens revolved around the earth, where the earth was the, the center of the universe. What's more, this was a cosmos that was an ordered one, where the order and beauty of the stars of the cosmos was reflected in the order and beauty of human beings and their faculties. In other words, there was a a symmetry between the macrocosm, the, the larger universe, and the microcosm, the human psyche. The seeming harmony of the stars was reflected in both the, the reasoning capacities and the goodness of human beings. People were not animals. No, far from it. They were closer to the pure intelligence of angels than they were the the lowly and appetitive soul of animals. Okay, so what does any of this have to do with Hamlet and his procrastination? Well, I think that one reason why it is he delays why he's so overwhelmed by the treacherous act of Claudius and his mother's quick marriage is because these things smash his former view of the natural order, of the harmonious cosmos. Or, in other words, they rupture his illusion of a perfectly good world. What Shakespeare suggests by such evil and tragic events, and what Hamlet seems to see for the first time, is a reality that lies beneath the appearance of things. The the earth is not at the center of things where everything is designed ultimately for the good of man. And human beings are not closer to angels. No, there is no hierarchy of being. Or, if there is, humans reside with the beasts. I mean, we have to remember that around this period, or a little before, the beginning of the 16th century, was also the beginning of the scientific revolution. And the the discoveries made during this time had enormous consequences. I mean, even the little discoveries were suggestive. Um, Kepler, for example, noticed that the orbits of planets weren't perfectly circular, but rather elliptical. Now, just this observation alone suggested that maybe the movement of the heavens wasn't as perfectly harmonious as it was thought. And Galileo, Galileo spotted dark streaks on the surface of the sun. Again, these seeming blemishes suggested that maybe the cosmos wasn't as perfectly beautiful and error-free as it was assumed. But 
Of course, it was Copernicus who really first questioned the cosmological order and inaugurated the heliocentric view, and so eventually displacing us to the periphery of the universe, dislocating us from our firm center. Anyway, so back to Hamlet specifically. So what's the evidence for the view that Hamlet was so shell-shocked by what he saw that this is what produced his inertia? Well, it's interesting. Shakespeare does make sure to describe to us what sort of person Hamlet was before Claudius's and his mother's transgressions. And what we're told is that Hamlet had a noble mind and that he was someone with the most sovereign reason. In other words, he was an idealist of sorts, someone who believed in the good, the right, and the beautiful. Okay, well, imagine being someone like this, with this sort of optimistic disposition, who is then struck by the murder of his father, the lust of his mother, which betrays his father's memory, and the fact that the kingdom is now in the hands of an unworthy man. I mean, it would shatter your previous picture of the world, no? Again, I think something like this is what happens to Hamlet. He realizes that the natural order of good and the supremacy of nobility and reason in people is just an appearance, masking a deeper underlying evil and rot. And this massively disillusions him and creates in him a kind of nihilistic immobility. Actually, in this way, he's not so far from someone like Siddhartha, who for a brief time just couldn't come to grips with the harsh reality of the world because, well, he had been protected from it. This is why it took him some time before he was able to gather up that courage for his great going forth, that, you know, first step into the jungles of India. Anyway, Hamlet clearly reveals his disillusionment when he goes on to severely question the traditional view of the cosmos. He says that the, the universe appears to him not as beautiful and ordered, but as, quote, nothing but a foul and pestilent congregation of vapors, end of quote. And not only that, but he has similar harsh words for human beings, too. In a very uh, famous passage, he tells us that people might think human beings are so noble and admirable, but really we're nothing but the quintessence of dust. Nothing at all to be delighted by. Notice here that he has questioned and attacked the moral and aesthetic order of both the, the larger universe and the human psyche in which it is supposedly reflected. So basically, the discovery by this pure idealist Hamlet of the cruelties, hypocrisies, and infidelities of life has brought with it a deep melancholy and sickness of life which paralyzes his power for action. It's a discovery we all know, or will know. One of the contradiction between the ideal world and the actual world. One between faith and doubt. And for the most innocent and delicate among us, it's a discovery that may, well, to paraphrase Goethe, shatter our atoms from within.
listening to the Wisdom of Podcast. If you want to know more about this topic or the podcast in general, visit wisdomofpod.com. And as usual, we love to read your questions and comments. Reach us at info at wisdomofpod.com or on Twitter at wisdom underscore pod. Our next episode. Lord of the Fleas. Not fleas, flies. Oh, Lord of the Flies.